the basis of our study tonight is going to um, the basis of our study tonight is on the sermon that Peter gave to the Jews on the day of Pentecost, which has been, and that scripture has been an anchor for our reasoning, right? That the process of the new birth is a multi-layered experience that involves repentance, believing, baptism in water, and it is consummated, it is sealed, and it is completed by the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And we explained that that does not mean that if you are not baptized in water, that you're not saved, right? We did say that um, to be saved means different things depending on what you're talking about. If you're talking about salvation from the penalty of sin and eternal security, then of course you are saved, right? But if you're talking about salvation from the power of sin, um, then you are being saved. That's the language of scripture. That's why Paul says, walk out your salvation with fear and trembling. And if you're talking about salvation from the presence of sin, then you shall be saved, right? So those are the senses in which the scripture uses salvation, okay? So Acts chapter 2, verse 37 to verse 39 will be our main anchor scripture to kick off this study. Um, can you read for us our co-host for the, for the evening, the Freke, Acts chapter 2, from verse 37 to 39. Okay, Acts chapter 2, verses 37. Um, now, when they heard this, they were caught to their hearts and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Okay, thank you very much. So you can see where we lifted our theme for tonight, right? Directly from verse 38. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what we did last week was to establish the consistency of the pattern, right, that Peter presents in verse 38, the pattern for the new birth. Because this is the first time that the question, how can I be saved, right, is being answered post-resurrection, right, post-ascension of Jesus, Peter's sermon. It's the very first time that anyone, and Peter of all people, the evangelistic apostle, the one to whom the keys of the kingdom were committed to open it to the Jews and to the Gentiles, the one to whom those keys were given, this is him speaking. So what we did last week was to establish that Peter was not alone in raising this emphasis of the need for repentance and baptism in water and then baptism in spirit to complete um, that process of the new birth. John the Baptist preached it. Jesus picked up from where John the Baptist left off and preached it. And like we're going to see tonight, in the whole New Testament, nobody anticipated the coming of the Holy Spirit like Jesus. Right? So... Jesus definitely wants you to have something after you have been saved in that sense. Um, and also Paul um, laid the same emphasis. I think we read Titus chapter three, verse five, where he says that we are saved, right? By the washing of, the, of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, which was poured out upon us. So Paul understands the full context of save 
to include baptism in water and baptism in the spirit. So now that we have established that baptism in the spirit is a necessary is a necessary element for anyone who intends to walk in the kingdom of God, for anyone who intends to walk in the newness of life that Jesus offers us, right? We want to take a deeper look at this gift, right? Because Paul says, or rather Peter in this sermon says, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The first thing we notice about this gift is that it was promised, right? That's what verse 39 is saying to us, that the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off. So that includes you and I, and not just the Jews, as many as the Lord our God will call. So the gift of the Holy Spirit and the receiving of the gift of the Holy Spirit was premised on a promise that God the Father had made. In fact, I can go further to say that not only did God make that promise, Christ prayed the Father that that promise will not be held back. So that establishes the fact that there is something that God wants you to receive. Now, this is a pattern that you have to follow when you're trying to establish any core or foundational doctrine, right, of the faith, which is that um, the New Testament is hidden in the Old Testament. And so if something is a core revelation, so if it's a core principle of the doctrine of Christ, you would always be able to locate an Old Testament promise. Right? So if we say that salvation is by faith alone, right, and by grace alone, we need to locate that, that like the promise of that arrangement in the Old, in the Old Testament so that we know that that we are not just speaking out of context, but there is a stream of revelation that flows through. God was the same God who began to speak in Genesis and Matthew and the New Testament. It's just a continuation of his speakings in the Old. So you need to locate the Old Testament promise. And then you need to find the New Testament performance, right, of that promise. So there is the promise and then there's the performance, right? And then you need to locate the apostolic explanation of what is going on. So you locate the Old Testament promise, the New Testament performance, and the apostolic explanation. Any doctrine that you cannot establish on these three pillars um, is, is very faulty. So the question for us then is, what are some of the promises or what is the main promise or whatever scripture comes to your mind? What are the promises upon which the outpouring, the receiving of the gift of the Holy Spirit is based on. It's important for us to know those, right? If this is something that God promised in the Old Testament, what are those promises? Maybe I should ask because I cannot see your faces. Did you get my equation, right? Promise, performance, explanation. Does that equation make sense to you? Based on that equation, what's the promise upon which the, 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 the gift of the Holy Spirit is based on. Stephanie? No, no, I said, yes, I get the, the steps. Well, I think there's one part in Joel that promises the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I think it's in Joel that says, I'll pull out my spirit upon all flesh or something like that. Okay, so thank you for taking us directly to one of those promises, right? Joel chapter 2, verse 28. It's right here in front of us, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. 
and then there will be a visible practical effect of that outpouring this is something we were going to come back to later but the release of the spirit is not a quiet um unconscious experience it was never the case in the old testament that someone received the spirit unconsciously without knowing right remember we said that there are three streams of view of how we receive the holy spirit and we're getting ahead of ourselves a bit but in the in one of the streams there is a teaching that you that that there are two receivings of the holy spirit one is a quiet you know um, organic experience or and then the other is a bit more loud but every time we see the spirit released in the old testament it was there was no doubt as to what had just happened right there were audible and visible signs of that release in the case of joel it says that your sons and your daughters shall prophesy so that's the vocal that's the vocal expression of the receiving of that gift your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions thank you stephanie for pointing us here um, in the interest of time i would just say that in the old testament there is the promise right of the coming kingdom and that promise is consummated in a king who would rule in the dynasty of david in one that the scripture refers to as the anointed now that one personality in history was supposed to be a spirit anointed sovereign daniel in his prophecies look look forward to the anointed one so he is the one unto whom god was going to give the spirit without measure but the plan was not just that there will be an anointed messiah or an anointed savior right who would set up the kingdom of god but that kingdom needs to have subjects right within the kingdom that kingdom needs to have subjects within the kingdom that are saturated by the same spirit so the king is anointed and his subjects or those who are part of his kingdom are saturated right by that anointing um stephanie has a question in the chat which is please what is the scripture okay um maybe we should look at one of those just one okay you can find them in the prophecies of daniel where the son of man is spoken about but let us look at psalm chapter 89 um, as a reference um, psalm 89 verse 19 reading down then you spoke in a vision to your holy one and said i have given help to the one who is mighty I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found my servant, David. Now, here you would immediately think that he's referring to the David that you know, right? But as you read further, you realize that <laughs> this has to be a different David. I have found my servant, David. With my holy oil, I have anointed him, with whom my hand shall be established. Also, my arm shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. I will beat down his foes before his face and plague those who hate him. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. And I will set his hand. So from verse 25, you begin to see that this has to be more than David, because what we are reading in verse 25 was not from verse 25 down, right? It was not the physical experience of David the king 
also I will set his hand over the sea, that is over the nations, and his right hand over the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Also, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My mercy I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall stand firm. His seed also I will make to endure forever. And my emphasis at the end of verse 29, and his throne as the days of heaven. Now, there are several scriptures in the Old Testament, especially in the prophecies of Isaiah, right? that points towards the manifestation of this king whose throne will endure forever. And the effect of this king who is anointed by God, as we see in the prophecies of Isaiah, is that he will rule in righteousness. That's the reason that he needs to come from God and be anointed from God so that he can reign in righteousness. And if you followed our studies, you would remember that we said that without righteousness, there cannot be peace on the earth. It is the justice of God, the judgment of God that will produce peace upon the earth. The righteousness of God, the righteousness of his reign that will produce peace. And the, the, the United Nations peacekeeping missions and all of those cannot accomplish peace until there is absolute justice on the earth. And only a king that is set up by God in the heavens, which is Christ, can achieve that. And it is righteousness that produces peace and joy. That's why Paul speaking to the Romans said that the kingdom of God is not in meat and drink. That is, the kingdom of God is not in sacrifices and all those burnt offerings. But the kingdom of God is in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. And the agency for righteousness, peace, and joy is the Holy Ghost. So you read, for example, this is just to lay an Old Testament foundation, right, for the promise, right? Isaiah chapter 11 that says that there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Okay. The spirit of the Lord. This is, <laughs> okay, let's not press it, but the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And then he begins to talk about the sevenfold intensification of that spirit that will allow him rule in righteousness. If you notice every other dimensions of the spirit that are mentioned here, are the dimensions of this are the dimensions that are required to, to produce righteousness, peace, and joy? It says the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and mind, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And it goes on and on. And you can see that righteousness shall be, shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness, the belt of his waist. I know that we like praying these scriptures over ourselves, which is good. But it's important when you read the whole testament. Old Testament to realize that scriptures like this are anticipating or were anticipating a particular personality in history. This personality was supposed to appear in history. It says very clearly, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of David. One of the most popular scriptures we know, which Jesus himself quoted, is Isaiah 61, which we also like to quote for ourselves and pray over ourselves. But when you read scriptures like this, it's important to first read them in the original context. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. I am that anointed one because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. So this is the prophecy of Isaiah about a person. He's here. He was able to peep into the future and see a person standing who has embodied the anointing that the Lord wanted to bring into the earth. He says he has anointed me to preach. 
He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So this is the first aspect of the promise that there's going to be an anointed king in history. The second aspect of the promise, right, is that it's not only the king that will be anointed, but his people will also be saturated with his spirit. Or another word for saturated is his people will be filled with his spirit. So the king is anointed with the spirit without measure, and his people are filled with the spirit. There is none of us that can be anointed with the spirit in the same way that Jesus was. Jesus is the anointed one, and we are filled with the spirit. That's the language, if you want to be accurate. That's the language of scripture. And the effect of being filled with the spirit, right, is that, first of all, his people will be satisfied. And we're going to see all of this. That's the first effect. You know, the, the first name that Jesus calls the Holy Spirit is the comforter. You know, we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but that's actually the first effect of the feeling of the spirit, that, that the hunger and the test in your soul. Do you realize that your soul hungers and tests for food? The same way that your body needs to eat physical food, your spirit hungers and tests for something that can fill it. And what ends up happening with us is that we is that we fill up our souls with all kinds of things. You know, we can fill it up with movies, with relationships, with even sermons, because we are longing for reality, and only reality can fill a man to satisfaction. So he first comes to satisfy us, and then he comes to make us a prophetic people. That's that's what Joel. That's the aspect that Joel talks about, right? He says that I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh and they will prophesy. So he comes to make us a prophetic people. And by prophetic people, I don't mean anything strange or big. I simply mean people who are led by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, and can bring leading by the Spirit. Because that's what it takes to walk in the newness of life. Just to read one more verse here in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 44, verse 1 to 3. Yet hear now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I've chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I've chosen. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. And then just in case you don't know what it means by I will pour water, it says, I will pour my spirit upon your descendants and my blessing upon your offspring. And the, and the first errand of the outpouring is satisfaction. Friends, God wants to know you personally. He wants to come into a personal, satisfying relationship with you. You know, the thing is that we normally say this to unbelievers as a way of bringing them into Christ. But the message is actually for those who have believed. That now that you have believed, God wants to do something inside of you. You know? Okay, so does that establish for us clearly the Old Testament promise, right? So when Peter says that this promise is for you and your children and for those who are far off, does that establish it for us? Because now we need to go to the New Testament um, promise. Okay. So I'll take Stephanie's answer as the answer of everybody. 
unless there's an objection. Please always feel free to type in the chat your questions, objections, and thoughts, because it's my intention that all of us will come into the experience of what we're talking about, right? So if this promise was only highlighted in the Old Testament, then we can, the way some people <laughs> like to interpret scripture, it can be folded up and shot up as Old Testament words that God discarded. But you see, in the New Testament, no one speaks about the gift of the Holy Spirit and no one anticipates the coming of the Holy Spirit as much as Jesus does. And so what we're going to do, instead of looking at all the scriptures, right, that anticipate the coming of the Holy Spirit or that speak of the gift of the Holy Spirit, we're just going to read the words of Jesus, right, since he's the ultimate authority on these matters. So now I need my co-host to help me again so that I can put you to good use. Huh? Can you read for us? Um, John chapter 14, verse 15 to 20. Okay, John chapter 14, 15 to 20. Mm -hmm. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. A little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live and you will live also. At that day, you will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. Okay, can you read verse 21? He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Thank you. Wow, so much is going on here. This is one of my favorite chapters of the entire Bible. But let's, let's try to stay on the message, right? What's going on in John chapter 14 is that Jesus is about to depart the earth. And as he's about to depart, there's a sense of disappointment, right? Because that kingdom that was promised did not appear to have materialized in a physical form. And rather than, Jesus to be, rather than Jesus to make plans for the actualization of that kingdom, he begins to make plans for his departure. And he begins to try to communicate the reality that is going away to his disciples without completely breaking their hearts. Because if you know what is going on here, the disciples understood the kingdom promises in very earthly and materialistic terms like we've seen in Acts chapter one. So that's what's going on here. So this is one of the last admonitions of Jesus. And he says that if you love me, keep my commandments and I will pray the father and he will give you another comforter. Of course, we've all, we all know that the Greek here is translated alos paracletos, which means another of the same kind. And this is one of the scriptures that emphasizes the deity of the Holy Spirit the personality of the Holy Spirit, right? He says, I will give you another comforter. So Jesus thinks that you and I need a comforter. <laughs> and the, the New King James says a helper, but the, but the better translation is actually um, a comforter. I mean, like the word itself, paracletos, refers to someone who stands by you, right? And that standing by you can be a legal standing by you. You know, if, you're, if you end up in court and you have a lawyer who stands by you, that's a paracletos. 
or you have someone who comforts you. So it's a very deep word. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's important for you and I to realize this because every time we talk about the subject of the Holy Spirit, uh, because of our Pentecostal settings, our mind seems to go to the dramatic and the power aspect of it. But fundamentally, Jesus thinks that you need a helper. Right? So what this tells us is that God did not intend to save anybody without giving them the gift of the Spirit. And like we said last week, most people don't dispute this fact. What they dispute is when and how does that gift come? Right? But it's necessary to see that you need a helper. A good way to translate this helper is to go to Psalm chapter 23, where the psalmist caught a revelation of this helper. And he says, the Lord is my shepherd. And everything that he describes as the, as the benefit of having the Lord as your shepherd applies to your interpretation of, of, of the Holy Spirit as your helper. Now, another thing to note here is that Jesus anticipates him, right? So he's saying that the Holy Spirit has not been released yet. Meanwhile, the people he's talking to are saved. Because if you read the previous chapter where Jesus attempted to wash their feet, he said to them that all of you are clean except one. Right? So the people he's talking to are saved, but they haven't received something. They haven't received the promise of the Father. So that's the first thing Jesus calls him. And like we said earlier, you see, the human spirit is like a container. And it can be, and the depths of that container cannot be exhausted. And it is God who made that container. God made it for himself. Try to think of container in the most fancy terms you can, not in the most common terms. Right? It's, it's, it's like a home. It's like a house. It's like, it's like an essence that has depth. And God made the human spirit for himself. And he made our longing for reality as deep as himself. I'm digressing a bit, but have you realized that nothing can truly satisfy you have you ever thought about that? That it doesn't matter how much food you eat today, you are going to be hungry tomorrow. And that's a metaphor for your spiritual life and for your soulish life, that the more good things you have, the more good things you want, right? The more satisfaction you get, the more longing you have for more of the same. And it is, it is the depth of our desires that opens the door for addiction. Right? Because Satan sometimes convinces us that something material can fill a void that is eternal. And then we, we buy into that light and we begin to pour matter into eternity. And we discover that there is no end to the depth of the hunger of the soul. Right? The spirit of man needs to be filled. And if it's not filled by the Spirit of God, unfortunately, it can be possessed by devils, like, like we saw um, all through the ministry of Jesus to the people that he ministered to. Satan can take advantage of it. And even if it's not possessed by devils, it, it, you need a satisfaction that is, that is tied to nothing earthly. And God intends to fill you with his Spirit. God does not intend to save you and to tell you, Go and enjoy your life. He intends to fill you with his spirit. Right? The same way that, this, that the body needs food, your spirit needs food. And the food that your body needs is the reality of God. Hi. 
this word reality is heavy, it's packed, but just take it, it's the reality of God. And you see, it's only the Holy Spirit that can bring you the experience of that reality of God. That's what you're hungry for. Jesus, some people followed Jesus in, in John chapter 6. After he made, he fed 5,000, remember? With five loaves of bread and two fish. And Jesus turned to them and said, you, you are not following me because of the spiritual. You're following me because according to your economics, you have discovered that if you follow me, you're never going to be hungry physically. And then he said to them, do not labor for the meat which, which perishes, but labor for the meat which endures unto eternal life. There's a meat that endures. There's a satisfaction that endures. And I can assure you that nothing you, you, you do on the external can fill that void. Can I even shock you? It's possible that you may be trying to fill the void with worship songs or with sermons. And I'm telling you because I've tried it before. Like the Holy Spirit had to open my eyes to see that you can listen to 500 sermons <laughs> and the void is still there. Because the sermons are just an entry, an entry into the reality. If you don't lay hold of the reality of God, you cannot be satisfied. You cannot be filled. And that's why in verse 17, Jesus now gives him another name, causing the spirit of truth. And truth there is not a statement of fact. Truth is the nature of reality. It's the thing that is true at the core. If you take all the layers and all the shells away, what is at the heart of reality? That is truth. You know? So Jesus calls him the spirit of reality as well because he knows that <laughs> you need. it is only reality that can fuel you. He is the spirit. If you, if you engage with him long enough, you, you will begin to touch the reality of God. You see, the Bible says that God is a spirit, right? And you are not a spirit. At the very least, you have a spirit, but you are not a spirit. You are, you, you are a man. And the definition of man is an entity that has body, soul, and spirit. But God, by essence and by nature, right, is a spirit. How are you supposed to know a spirit? The only way to know a spirit such as God, is that you are guided in that knowledge. That's why if you are, if I read John chapter 16, you, you read where Jesus says that he will guide you. I have so much to say to you, but those things I have to say to you cannot be communicated in English or in Hebrew. And if I attempt to make them cognitive, they're just going to pass over your head. But that's not so much of a problem because when the spirit of reality comes, he will, he will speak the language of reality. So it is through the spirit of God that God guides us into the knowledge of himself. So that the only way to know God is when you have his life. Because his life furnishes the witness of his reality. Through the life of God, for example, you can, you can sense the peace of God. And you know that God is in the space. God is in the situation. That is not going to end the way that your mind is telling you that to end. You, you cannot know those things by, by any kind of cognitive learning. You can only know them by the Spirit. Friends, your hunger, that thing that you're looking for that makes you restless in the Spirit, that thing is called reality. It's all truth, if you like. And there is a custodian of that. It's called the Spirit of Truth. Right? This is not our message, but I just thought to, to pass by that juncture. And he now says to us in verse 18, 
I will not leave you orphanos. I like the way the New King James uses the actual translation of that Greek word orphanos. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Meaning that a believer who does not have the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' view, is a believer, but his experience is going to be an orphaned experience. An orphan is someone without comfort. Right? He doesn't have the comfort of father and mother. And that's not God's intention for any of us. So he says, I won't leave you as orphans. I won't leave you in the experience of not knowing the fatherly care of God. I will come to you through the Spirit. So you can see that Jesus anticipates the Spirit, and he doesn't assume that his disciples receive the Spirit. Okay. Um, I think that this scripture that we've read is enough, but just check in here if you have any thoughts on this so far, any questions before we continue. Oh, okay. Um, basically, you know, like, I will not leave you often. So Jesus is leaving and he's telling them I'm going to send somebody else. But then there's some, you know, in Galatians right now, says, now the Lord is that same, is that spirit. Sometimes I'm like, I don't know, should I say good morning, Jesus, or good morning, Holy Spirit? Well, do you know, as in, sometimes I get confused about it's very silly, but as in when I'm praying, I'm like, oh, okay, should I say good morning, Jesus, and good morning, Holy Spirit at the same time, or are they the same prep? Do you understand what I'm saying, Josh? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that as in, because he's saying I'm leaving and I'm sending somebody else. And then a Galatians says, it is the Lord that is that spirit. Mm -hmm. So it's just, for me, it's just a bit confusing because... Yes. Uh, the reason it's confusing and to continue to be confusing, right, is because those are not carnal realities, right? Those are not cognitive realities. That's a spiritual reality. And in a spiritual reality, the language is, is secondary. That, that's the best way to put it. Whether you say good morning, Jesus, or good morning, Holy Spirit, the language is secondary, right? It's the reality that is behind the language that is primary. And there are many things that you cannot cognitively understand until you see him face to face even. So you are going to see Jesus saying to somebody that has been lame for 38 years, get up and walk, right? You, you can't write that in a book as a formula for dealing with lame people because you realize that what is happening there is beyond language. So one thing to note is if you look at the account in um, John chapter 16, it says, I still have many things to say to you, right? but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. And how will he do it? For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. So the spirit is the representation of Jesus in your life. What I mean by that is the spirit is the one that makes the reality of Jesus real to you. You know, all these things we're reading is letters. You read that Jesus existed 2,000 years ago. How can you know it is the Spirit? And the Spirit serves as a conduit so that, like you said, Stephanie, you don't know if it's the Spirit or if it's Jesus because it's almost like exactly the same thing. And I can tell you that they are not, they are not fighting over who you, whose name you use. Right? It's because the essence is the essence of Jesus. The reality is the reality of Jesus. It is his anointing that we are partaking of through the spirit, 
right? Um, Thank you, sure, I understand. Thank you. Okay. So Nancy has a question in the chat that says, <laughs> how do we lay hold of the reality of God? The answer is very, very simple. <laughs> but the way to experience the answer is not too simple. But the answer itself is simple. The answer is that you have to deal with the spirit of reality. That's why he came. Jesus says it is the spirit that quickens. So you have to know how to interface with the, with the spirit. And it is when you interface with the spirit that you can lay hold of the reality of God. So for example, in, in Philippians chapter four, right? You read, be anxious for nothing. So what does that mean? It means that there's a situation in front of you that you cannot solve and your mind is restless. Be anxious for nothing does not help you at all, right? Because your mind still is anxious. So how do you lay hold of the reality of God in that sense, pauses, but with prayer and thanksgiving, prayer and thanksgiving. That's how to engage the spirit because he's the one that holds the reality of God. He says, let your request be made known to God and then reality will flood your heart, the peace of God. <laughs> and when you touch the peace of God, ah, the, the problem is actually solved because anxiety leaves you. And when you operate from rest, Satan cannot stop you. That is man's design. You and I were designed to operate from rest. Now, this question may make us digress, but you and I were designed to operate from rest. We were created on the seventh day after God finished his work as a metaphor that it is only in rest mode that, that the glory that God puts in you comes out best. And so Paul says, if you engage the spirit by prayer and thanksgiving, you will lay hold of reality. Does that answer your question, Nancy? In the meantime, Stephanie, was your hand up? It was up, but I didn't want us to digress. So, yeah. but I'll ask it anyway. Sorry. In liaison with the Holy Spirit, like Nancy mentioned, right? I often find myself asking for help at very, very, very um, when I'm in a very, very dicey situation. And then like this today, I, I could not remember something for the life of me. I was trying to recall and then I'm like, oh, Holy Spirit, help me remember. And then it comes and I'm like, was that my mind or was that the Holy Spirit? It could have been my mind that just brought that up. Should I say thank you, Holy Spirit, or should I just say I have a good memory? It's very, very weird as in, in terms of engaging and, you know, the Holy Spirit and interfacing with him. Because it's like, mm. it must have been my mind. It, mo it can be, yeah. you know? Yeah. So it's, it's kind of confusing. If you want to know if it was your mind <laughs> or if it was the Holy Spirit, try, try not asking next time where you are. Where you are. <laughs> wow, thanks, Joshua. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. And then you, 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 <laughs> you realize, I can tell you that as a software engineer, I kind of feel like I can solve most problems that my skill set is in, right? But then I bump into problems that are just tough. I spend, sometimes I spend three days battling with them until on the third day I remember to ask the Holy Spirit. And this has happened enough times. And when I say enough times, I mean multiple times. I've been a software engineer for a while. That's in five minutes, in 10 minutes, in one hour, the problem of three days is solved. And then when you look at the solution, you're like, I knew this thing. <laughs> but the question is, why didn't you solve it in three days? Right. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of reality, friends. Um, as much as you listen to sermons, 
make time to listen to the Holy Ghost. As much as you interface with everything that ushers us into reality, make, make time to interface with the author of reality himself. Don't let anything replace your moments with the author of reality. If not, you'll be filling the cup of your spirit with something that cannot satisfy it. And I know that there is always the fear of missing out, right? Oh, I have a backlog of things to do, of sermons to listen to, of whatever to do. There is only one source of reality, and that is the spirit. Okay. Okay, now we need to really run, right? What, what I wanted us to see from that exploration of Jesus' theology, right, of the spirit. Now, there are a few things to notice from Jesus' theology, if you like, of the spirit. So the first thing to notice, very critical, is that at the time Jesus was speaking, right, the spirit was not yet given, right? That's pretty clear. The reason that's important to emphasize is that, remember, we said in the different streams of interpretation of how the spirit is received, some people say that there, there are two receivings of the spirit, but we don't find any such basis. We, we, not that any such basis, we don't find strong evidence for it in the scripture. There are one or two fleeting verses here and there, yes, but it does, it's not the pattern. As at the time Jesus was speaking to these people, whatever he was telling them they were going to receive had not yet come, all right? In John chapter seven, this same book of John, chapter seven, verse 39, of verse 37 to 39, where the Bible says that on that great day of the feast, Jesus stood on the porch of the temple and he proclaimed, if anyone test, let him come to me and drink. As the scripture has said, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. And when John interpreted that for us so that he doesn't leave us in doubt, he said, she just turned it very quickly, John 7, verse 39, the interpretation of John about the statement of Jesus. Verse 38, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. There's a separation between believing in him and receiving. Okay? So they are not the same experience. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not glorified. So this is why... Um, the Holy Spirit was anticipated throughout the ministry of Jesus, right? That Jesus at this point was still the only anointed one. And he told us in John chapter 12 that except a corn of wheat fall to the ground and dies, it abides alone, that his anointing would have been just him. Right? And so he needed to fall to the ground, die, germinate, and then become that spirit. And then in that mode, he can be poured out. So he was not yet glorified, so the spirit was not yet given. Now, you might ask me, if you're thinking very fast about this, you might ask me, so how is somebody saved if you say that they have not received the Holy Spirit, right? And that's a good question to ask, right? Because the people Jesus was talking to were saved as far as we're concerned, right? But they didn't yet have the spirit. So what we're dealing with is not a matter of eternal security, which I think we've made clear when we touch the baptism of water. What we're dealing with is a matter of kingdom participation, right? It's a matter of power and authority, sorry. It's a, yeah, it's a matter of power and authority in that sense. One thing I would like us to look at though is to see, is to see the kind of things that people did even before they received the promise of the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit. So we see in John chapter one, verse 12, where John tells us, let us go there quickly. 
John chapter 1, verse 12. Because when people try to say that they are believing in Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit are the same experience, these are some of the scriptures that they use. John chapter 1, verse 12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the rights. Okay. This scripture says the rights, but the old King James says the power, and then better translation says the authority, because that's the Greek word used there, exousia. As many as received him, to them he gave the exousia, the authority to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So they were born of God, but what they received because they were born of God was authority. Right? So it means that when you believe in Christ, there's a measure of authority that comes upon your life because you have been born of God in that sense, right? So it is possible to receive authority and yet not have the spirit. And if you doubt this, let's look at Luke chapter 9. Um, Luke chapter 9. This is before Jesus was ascended and before he gave the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the gospel of the kingdom and to heal the sick. None of these people was filled with the Holy Spirit. But yet, the one with whom the Spirit was domiciled reserved the, the privilege and the capacity to give them power and authority. Notice that he gave them, right? This is not power that is stirred up by themselves because they couldn't, they didn't have the Holy Spirit. He gave them the power and authority. And of course, he says the 12 disciples here, so including Judas Iscariot, right? And Jesus tells us that Judas was not saved. That's, that's the most accurate theological position on the experience of Judas, that he was not saved. John chapter 13 makes that quite clear. Um, but he was not saved, yet he was able to receive power and authority because power and authority is a reality. And Jesus can give you that reality if he so wishes, right? He can give it to you and he gave it to them because he wanted them to perform a certain assignment for him. If God has an assignment in your life and I'm the only Christian in the vicinity, my alignment with God may not exactly be where it needs to be 100%, but Jesus can give me power and authority to cast out a demon. It's just that we, 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 we tend to make the casting out of demons a very high thing, you know, something that uh, we tend to think is a matter of how holy we have been or how correct we have been. But even Judas Iscariot was able to do it because he received authority. Right? So power and authority are realities, but Jesus doesn't just want to give you reality. Jesus wants to give you the author of reality. Because even though he could give his disciples power and authority, and if you read verse just in case you say this is the apostles, if you go to Luke chapter 10, the Bible says that after these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also that you and I don't know their names. And he didn't give them anything less than he gave the other 12, right? I think in verse 19, 
He says that, behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. The basis of their receiving this authority and power was their believing in Jesus. So that you can be holy, holier than another Christian who may not even be as holy as you. But if that Christian believes more than you, it's likely that they will do more than you. Because there is a measure of power and authority that is given on the grounds of believing. Even though Jesus can give you power, now this is where I want you to follow me very closely. Even though Jesus can give you power and authority, he still wants you to wait for the spirit and to desire the spirit. He still wants you to have a different kind of power. In the same Luke chapter 24. So these are the people that he has given authority and power, right? But in Luke chapter 24, verse 49, after his resurrection, Jesus said, Behold, I send the promise of my father upon you, but tarry you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So even though Jesus can give you a gift of power, he wants you to wait for the gift of, of the spirit and a different kind of power that will come as a result of that gift. Remember, we're reading a lot in Luke, but it's necessary for us to do that. If you remember in Luke chapter 9, verse 11, the famous keep asking, seeking, and knocking scripture. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, Will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? Now, what is it that he wants us to keep asking, seeking, and knocking for? Now, this is Luke 11, after he had given them power and authority. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit? to those who ask him. So even though Jesus can give you the reality of power and authority, again, I repeat, he wants you to desire and wait and tarry for the reality of the spirit. My question to us is, why is that the case? If my computation makes sense to you, why is that the case? Why does Jesus want us to receive the spirit? Well, one thing you may have noticed, right, already is that power and authority can be exercised outside of the Holy Spirit. And when it is exercised outside of the Holy Spirit, it can be abused, right? And it can, be, and it can produce something that Jesus cannot identify with because the Spirit is not part of it. Look at Luke chapter 9, the same scripture in which he gave them power and authority Verse 55, I hope I've not lost you at this point. We're getting somewhere, We're getting somewhere. Luke chapter 9, verse 55. But he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. 
what happened. Right? Jesus was attempting to pass through the village of the Samaritans and they refused him because his face was set for Jerusalem. And then James and John, having received power and authority, came and said, Lord, do you want us to command fire? So these people had the ability to command fire to come down from heaven. The same way Elijah did. That's the measure of authority and power that was put in their hands. But they didn't have the spirit that regulates such expression. So maybe now, the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, right, which trouble a lot of believers begin to make sense to you, where he says in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Now look at the things that someone can do without receiving the Holy Spirit, just because something is given to them. Have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. And the basis of their rejection is that they practice lawlessness. Now, you can see why we are in need of Holy Spirit baptism. Because the Holy Spirit is the one that seals your salvation. The reason why the Holy Spirit is the seal of your salvation is because he is the Holy Spirit. Or he is Holy Spirit. Or he is the spirit of holiness. So when you are sealed with the spirit of holiness, that's God's way of guaranteeing that lawlessness will not be your final destination will not be your outcome do you remember hebrews chapter 12 verse 14 that says follow peace with all men right and holiness without which no man shall see the lord the way god arranges for the holiness part of that equation is that he gives you the spirit of holiness right so the Holy Spirit is the agency that brings the, he doesn't just bring the reality of God. That's the first thing he does. He, he, um, 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 he bears witness in our hearts that we are the sons of God. And in that capacity of witness bearing, Romans chapter 8 calls him the spirit of adoption. Right? He bears witness. But he doesn't only do that. He brings the government of God into our lives. And as a result, he brings a new kind of power into our lives. So all this is to say that the receiving of the Holy Spirit is a distinct and separate experience from believing in Jesus and is one to be desired. It is a vocal and it is an invasive experience, one that cannot happen subconsciously. But the thing to note about the receiving of of the Holy Spirit or about the promise of the Father is that there are two dimensions to this promise. So it is not two receivings. You don't receive, at least that's not how God intended it. Even if that happens in isolated cases, that's fine. But that's not how God designed it from everything that we've read. You don't receive the indwelling, then several weeks or months or years later, you now receive the outpouring. No, those are not two receivings. It is one gift with two dimensions. The same gift that you receive has two dimensions to it. And we, I think that as 
Pentecostals or even Charismatics, we know the two dimensions, right, of the gift of the Spirit, which is the indwelling of the Spirit and the outpouring of the Spirit. Those are the two dimensions of the receiving of the Spirit. Those two dimensions are mirrored for us in the book of John chapter 4. In the book of John chapter 4, we're not going to read it, but if you remember John chapter 4, Jesus met a woman at the well, right? And he promised to dig a well in that woman, verse 13 to 15. And Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give to him will never thirst. But that water that I will give him will become a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Jesus is saying that by the spirit, I will do something inside of you. This is an indwelling reality. Of course, there are many scriptures that we can use, right, to explain this indwelling reality. But this is one of the very clear metaphorical expressions of it in the ministry of Jesus that I want to dig a well inside you. So that is one dimension of the receiving of the Holy Spirit. And Paul speaks about this dimension in Romans chapter 8, right, where he says from verse 11, that if the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So there is the indwelling of the spirit. And then, of course, there is the outpouring of the spirit. And this is what Jesus spoke of in John chapter 7, verse 37, where we read that he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. So the receiving of the Holy Spirit is an invasive experience that overwhelms you. It is like a digging experience inside of you. And at the same time, it's like an overflowing experience outside of you. And that's why in the Old Testament, the coming of the Spirit on anyone was always backed up by audible and visible evidence. They either prophesied or they spake or they sang. Something was, something was evident in their receiving of the Spirit. And so, like looking at everything that we have said, the question you might be asking or you might want to know about when you're talking to a new believer or even for yourself is, how do I know that I have the Holy Spirit? And the answer to that question is simple. If there are two dimensions of the gift of the Holy Spirit, the way to know if you have the Holy Spirit is to look for those two dimensions. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is supposed to produce the character of the Spirit, the character of Christ, what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. So even though I've not met you before, I don't know your theology, I can tell if you are filled with the Spirit by looking at the fruits you produce and what, what Spirit powers those fruits. You know, in that Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus was rejecting people who did miracles in his name, before he got there, he said, therefore, by their fruits, you shall know them. That the indwelling presence, the digging activity of Jesus produces the fruit of love overflowing in joy, peace, patience, temperance, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. 
that is one test. But you see, you will need to know somebody well enough or discern somebody or know them for a while for you to, to be able to come to a reasonable conclusion, right? That they have that they are filled with the spirit. And that's why the other way to know if you're if you're filled with the spirit is to look for the proof of the outpouring. What is the spontaneous activity of your life that overflows as a proof of receiving the Holy Spirit? And of course, the greatest expression of this spontaneity is speaking in other tongues, the gift of tongues. This was an unmistakable evidence and proof that backed up every experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. And every time, like we said, in the Old Testament where people were filled with the Spirit, the vocal expression was a potent expression. So that's why in the book of Acts chapter 19, when Paul met those disciples of Apollos and he asked them, have you received the Holy Spirit since you, since you believed? He was expecting an answer. And the answer was not, oh, you know, when I prayed the sinner's prayer, the Holy Spirit came. He was expecting them to know definitely if they had received the Holy Spirit. And of course, the test he was using was not whether there were fruits of the Spirit in their life or whether there was the outpouring dimension. Is there something sovereign, something, <laughs> something outspoken that emerges from your life? And I'm saying this because when we look all through church history, there are many people, of course, who received the Holy Spirit who did not speak in tongues. But there was the unmistakable, spontaneous overflow of the Spirit in their lives. It's just that their faith and doctrine did not allow them to speak in tongues. And the Holy Spirit in his graciousness overlooked those limitations. Right? And still poured himself upon them. So we have looked at these two dimensions, right? The indwelling and the outpouring. And one thing I want us to know before we go into a time of prayer is that um, the outpouring is what we all desire, right? The outpouring is, 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 the, is the clear, unmistakable proof of the thing that God does inside of us. But like we saw at the beginning, <laughs> God's aim is actually for the indwelling. The outpouring is supposed to give you confidence in the indwelling. You know, in the book of, the entire book of 1 Corinthians actually was written to a church, was written by Paul to a church that had so much of the charismatics, right? So much of the externalities, but they were struggling with lawlessness in all its shape and form. And what was Paul's solution to their problem? The way Paul um, remedied their lawlessness was by pointing them to the indwelling. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 to 20. Do you not know that your body is, is the temple of the Holy Spirit and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? That, is, that was the therapy. That was the dose that was supposed to cure them of lawlessness. The knowledge of the indwelling of the Spirit. They had all the charismatics but they forgot that the essence of the receiving of the spirit was so that there can be an overflow of holiness. But on the other hand, when Paul wrote to Timothy, right? If you remember, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, 
verse 6. He was reminding him about the outpouring. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. Therefore, I remind you to stir up. Something came upon you when hands were laid on you. And next week, we're going to look at the laying on of hands. Something sovereign, something mighty, something powerful came on you when hands were laid on you. And I'm reminding you that you need to stir it up. So here is Paul dealing with a, a young apostle, a young preacher, who obviously had the fruits of the indwelling, but was lacking in the manifestations that are a product of the outpouring. And he says, I'm, I'm, I'm reminding you to stir up the gift of God that is in you, to stir up the outpouring dimension. It's the same thing that Jude said to the, said to the Jews he wrote to in one of the books we studied, right? When he was giving them a defense against false doctrine. It says, build, he was pointing to the outpouring, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. The promise of the outpouring is that you will receive power. The kind of power that is not a gift that was put in your hands, right? Because the Greek word for the power that you receive when the Holy Spirit comes upon you is dunamis. It's an inherent power. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus is speaking. So the fact that Jesus says that you receive power, Jesus is informing them that when you receive the Holy Spirit, you will know about it, right? It's not going to be an unconscious experience. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and the power will make you something. Now, I want to, before we pray, I want us to notice something about this power because we're really running out of time. What I want us to notice about this power is that, <laughs> first of all, of course, it is dynamis, right? It is latent power. It is potential power. It's power that is dormant, waiting to be activated. That's why Paul said to Timothy, stay it up. But you see, the reason why this power is, is latent in that sense, right? The reason why this power is at rest is because this power is domiciled in the person of the Holy Spirit. If you're going to come into this power, you're going to have to relate with the Holy Spirit. And this is what Nancy asked us earlier. How can I come into the reality of God? It is by the Spirit. So it is dunamis because it is inherent power, power that is resident in a personality called the Holy Spirit. And if you're going to lay hold of that power, you're going to need to relate with him. You see, Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, that the antidote to the flesh is walking in the spirit. He says that the flesh is at war with the spirit. And anybody who has come to Christ is, is, is very familiar with this war. But he says there's an antidote. Walk in the spirit. The power is resident in the spirit and you have to activate it. Right. In Romans chapter 8, he tells us about, Paul tells us about the law of the spirit of life. He says that in his body, in Romans 7, that he found the law of sin and death. And what that law did to him is that he found himself doing the things that he didn't want to do. And the things that, um, that he wanted to do, he was not able to do. How was he able to get out of that quagmire? He located a power. Right. And Paul's advice to us, was that the spirit, or rather the law of the spirit of life was the antidote to the law of sin and death. 
I'm saying this to say that the way to activate the and walk in the power, right, of the Holy Spirit is to hold the principles of dependence and discipline <laughs> in tandem. If one of them is lacking your equation, you will not experience the power of the Spirit, unfortunately. Because the summation, the summation, if you, have, if you do an equation, the summation of life in the Spirit is dependence on the Spirit and discipline to lay hold of the things that God has for you. That's why when the apostles receive the Spirit, the Bible says they continue steadfastly. It takes discipline, friends, to continue steadfastly. But before they could continue, they had to depend until the anointing came, until the outpouring came, their discipline made no difference. So there are a lot of people that have a lot of discipline, but no dependence. It's all about their effort and their statistics and, and their holiness. It's going to lead to barrenness. There are a lot of people that have dependence. Oh, I'm trusting the Holy Spirit, but no discipline is also going to lead to barrenness because this power that is promised is dynamis. It is potential. You will have to engage it by relating with the Holy Spirit. Paul says that as many as are led by the Spirit, they are the sons of God. So that's the dependence aspect, right? That you are led by the Spirit. But the discipline aspect is that you follow after the Spirit. Holy Spirit, where are you going? What are you doing? And then you follow after. And then Romans chapter 8 also tells us to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. When God speaks a word to you, to meditate on it until you arrive at the place of doing it, that's the discipline aspect. The dependence is the hearing. You are waiting on God to hear his voice. <laughs> the discipline is setting your mind on what you heard. Because that's going to be the difference between two believers that had the same thing, that one is going to be disciplined about what he had, another one will forget. And then he tells us in, I think, Ephesians chapter 4, or even Romans chapter 8, verse 13, to mortify the deeds of the flesh through the spirit. That also takes discipline. The reason, friends, God wants to pour out the spirit upon you as we pray is that he wants to saturate you. Yes, he wants to fill you. He wants to overwhelm you with the spirit of holiness, with the power to knock down sin, to knock down distraction, to knock down sickness, to knock down anything that Satan can throw at you. He wants to give you power. The gift of the spirit is something to be desired. And just in case you have the gift of the spirit, the thing I leave you with is the continuous experience of the first Christians or the first apostles in the book of Acts, which is that always they were continually filled with the spirit. Because that's God's desire. That now that you have the spirit, as you engage him, you will be filled with him. And then everything that happens in your life will be an overflow of that feeling. Okay.